0: Thank you, Shirley, for reading scripture for us. I want to begin with a confession. I almost got into trouble uh, on the bus last Friday. You see, there was a young lady with a glorious head of hair, unlike mine, which is thinning and quite flat. I saw her at the bus stop, and we got on the same bus together. She sat uh, three seats in front of me, and I kept watching her hair. Finally, I couldn't stand it. Uh, Taking the weapon out from my bag, I walked up to her and said, excuse me, there is a red end on your hair. I'm going to flick it off, okay? So she nodded, and I took one swipe over her hair with my T-shirt. What happened next was not what I planned for. The end didn't move because it was caught in her hair. In my panic, I started doing what I usually do at home. I started hammering. The young lady was stretching her hand to her head before I realised I was hitting a stranger in a public bus. Technically, I was whacking the end, not her. Anyway, she put her hand on her hair, and I was afraid that that red end would bite her. You know, it's very painful. So I promptly gave it another whack. This time, the end got caught onto my T-shirt. Relieved that it came off, I showed her the 1cm red end, and it backed away. No, I backed away, sorry. How come no sound? There Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, okay. I backed away. Okay, yeah. Right. Anyway, I don't think I would have volunteered to do a pest control if uh, Pastor didn't ask me to preach on neighbors today. Yes, we're talking about neighbors based on our gospel reading, and he left uh, Pastor left specific instructions for us to continue uh, looking at Luke, and this is what we will do. The message I have for you today is perform mercy because you have experienced mercy. We'll split that up into uh, two points. Uh, You can see that on the slide for yourself. So when Jesus was asked why he taught in parables, he said, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. This means that every parable of Jesus is intended to reveal a truth about the kingdom of God. We'll keep this in mind as we look into our passage. And our passage begins in verse 25 quite abruptly with, And behold, a lawyer stood up. Now this suggests that Jesus was in a place surrounded by people who were sitting down. And it was very likely that he also was sitting down and teaching. It is supposed to be maybe a synagogue or a large home, although Luke does not specify But we know that this was the same day, in fact the same hour, when the 72 disciples had returned from their mission. Uh, Reverend Jonathan expounded on that reunion last week. So if you can imagine with me, Jesus was teaching a group of people in a quiet place when suddenly 72 high-spirited men marched in, feeling very triumphant. The disciples came bragging about what they had done. They were talking to Jesus, talking to each other, talking over each other like a boisterous bunch of school kids on a bus. And Jesus had to calm them down and remind them that their earthly success is not as important as having their names written in heaven. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit of God and he prayed a thanksgiving which everybody heard. And after that, he turned to his disciples and was speaking to them privately. The original group of people were still sitting around and probably taken aback by the disruption and by now getting impatient that Jesus didn't seem to be interested to getting back to what they were doing. So it was at this time that the lawyer stood up and asked, Teacher, what shall we do to inherit eternal life? And Luke used, and behold, to indicate to us that his abrupt motion and sudden question successfully captured the attention of everyone. Why this question of all questions though? Luke tells us that the lawyer asked this question to test Jesus. I suspect that the lawyer was offended by his thanksgiving prayer because Jesus had prayed, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now to the lawyer who was well-versed in the Mosaic law and every bit the wise and understanding man, this line would have sounded to him like an offence. He must be thinking, what do you mean that God has revealed knowledge to those, uh, to these fishermen but hidden it from me? How can you say there are things that I don't know when I can recite the Torah from back to front, front to back, diagonally if you want? And so perhaps since Jesus says the most important thing is to have your names written in heaven, the lawyer posed the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It was a test and not a real question because the lawyer knows the answer. In fact, every self-respecting Jew knows the way to eternal life is obedience to the law, which is summarized by the great commandments. But the lawyer deliberately asked this question to see if Jesus has anything new to say. He intends to shame him if Jesus couldn't review anything that was not already known to everyone present. But our Lord is never flustered by pop quizzes and tricky questions. So he made the lawyer answer his own question, and Jesus affirmed that answer, you have answered correctly. In addition, Jesus does review something which is hidden. Do this, and you will live. Cue thunder and lightning. Jesus exposes that the lawyer has not been doing the law even though he knew it well. Did the people in the room know that the lawyer didn't obey the law? Did the lawyer himself know that he was guilty? Regardless, the lawyer was so embarrassed that he was no longer concerned with shaming Jesus. He was now more concerned about saving his own reputation. Thus, he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? It's clearly a deflection, if not a self-defense. Eh? Like, uh, I've not fulfilled the commandment to love my neighbor because, because I don't know who my neighbor is. I uh, study so much. Can you think of a better excuse? But our dear Lord met the lawyer where he is and explained it to him using the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we are all familiar with. And the answer, I propose, is threefold. Firstly, The neighbor is the one who shows mercy to someone in need. In verse thirty-six, sorry, Jesus asked, "Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers?" And the lawyer answered, "The one who showed him mercy." Clearly, the neighbor is the one who shows mercy to someone in need. The second part of the answer is, "You are the neighbor." In verse thirty-seven, Jesus said to the lawyer. You go and do likewise. That is to say, don't ask who is my neighbour. Instead, go and be a neighbour to someone. And if you are the neighbour, then everybody else is your neighbour too. Easy. And the third part of the answer replies to a question which has not been asked but logically comes up. How do I be a neighbour? Or going back to where it all began, how do I love my neighbour as myself? And Jesus answered this using the Good Samaritan as a concrete example of how a neighbor should be. And two things we can observe from the Good Samaritan. One, a neighbor feels compassion for the person who is in need of help. In verse 33, uh, we see... Oops, sorry. When the Good Samaritan saw the man who was robbed, he had compassion. First, you need to feel something in your heart. A neighbor shows compassion using visible action. Now, the Good Samaritan did many things for the victim, and if we just count the number of verbs in verses 34 and 35, the Good Samaritan bound up, set, brought, took care, took out, gave, saying, and repay. So, from the example of the Good Samaritan, we learn that a neighbor feels compassion, which he demonstrates in action. Indeed, the emphasis throughout our passage is on the doing. The lawyer asked, what shall I do? Jesus replied, do what you said. The neighbor is the one who did mercy. And Jesus said in the end, do likewise. Do, did, done are action words. Being a neighbor means performing mercy, acting compassionately, and carrying out kindness to someone who is in need. Now let us look at the priest and Levite who did nothing for the victim. The text says that they passed by on the other side. In Greek, this phrase is actually one word, which means literally to pass by on the opposite side. They didn't just pass by, they walked on the opposite side. So what Jesus is trying to tell us, that doing nothing for someone in need is to be anti-mercy to do the opposite of mercy. It's now time to appreciate what the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us about the kingdom of God. Since the parable was an answer to the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Then according to the parable, to inherit eternal life, you must be a neighbor who performs mercy to anyone in need. If you don't show mercy if you're not a neighbour, then you're walking on the opposite side of eternal life. Thus, the parable of the Good Samaritan reveals that members of the kingdom of God are those who perform mercy. One afternoon, I was on a double-decker bus uh, travelling along the highway. There's bus examples today. From the upper deck, I could see a motorcyclist stopping on the road shoulder ahead of the bus stop that we were coming into. And this motorcyclist got off his motorbike and the motorbike toppled on the floor, crashed onto the road. He panicked, I panicked, maybe the bus driver panicked. Just then, another motorcyclist steered in, like Tom Cruise, uh, and stopped beside the fallen vehicle, swiftly dismounted, and helped the first one get his motorbike back up. He was also BMW, big, big type, you know, very heavy. Uh, So he helped him get it back up, and our bus drove away happily. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the motorcyclist whose motorbike fell over? The bus driver, the passenger, or the motorcyclist? Someone said motorcyclist. Ah, you're very honest. La. Give me some credit. Okay. But of course, the bus driver and I deserves no credits because we did nothing. The award goes to the motorcyclist who actually did something to help. So then you also agree with me that when I, when I say that none of us are neighbours if we simply feel compassion for the people in Queenstown. We are not neighbours if we are not doing anything to save them from eternal death. Last week, Reverend Jonathan gave the call for us to go out and evangelise 72,000 unsaved people in our neighbourhood. And before he left for Vietnam, he left me instructions to emphasise this in my message today. Therefore, I say to you, really, sitting here, nodding to the preacher, saying yes and amen, is not doing anything at all for those who need to be saved. We cannot keep waiting inside this building, hoping that unbelievers will walk in on their own. Waiting is not doing. Doing is going out to befriend people, meet their felt needs, while looking for the opportunity to show them their real need for God. If you've ever been to the hospital A&E, You observe that most patients who can walk in or drive themselves into the hospital are the less urgent, less severe cases. The more urgent and more severe cases tend to be those who come in by ambulance, those who need to be treated while in the ambulance. I'm not saying that we ignore walk-ins, don't get me wrong. My point is, there are people out there who are dying, who can't come to seek help unless help goes out to them first. Similarly, there are people who can't come to God unless we go out and bring Christ to them first. People who are struggling to feed their children have no time to attend worship services. People who are battling with illness don't have the energy to come to Christmas in Queenstown. People who are fighting insecurities and self-esteem issues won't dare to come and meet so many people in church. Therefore, it is imperative That members of the kingdom of God go out, bring Christ to our neighbours, and bring our neighbours before God. Of all the people mentioned in our passage today, which of them is most likely to perform mercy to the next person in need? Is it the lawyer whose hypocrisy has been exposed? Is it the other people sitting around who do not wish to be exposed? Is it the priest or the Levite who regret the decision? Or the innkeeper who saw the example of the Good Samaritan? May I suggest to you that if anyone, it would be the victim. Not because he went through this traumatic experience, but because he experienced mercy. Remember, the parable of the Good Samaritan was told in response to a question concerning the second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, if we may paraphrase the meaning of the parable in terms of the second commandment, it means you shall perform mercy to your neighbor just as you experience mercy yourself. You shall perform mercy to your neighbor just as you have experienced mercy yourself. The strongest, most powerful motivation for us to perform mercy to our neighbors has to be the experience of God's mercy. And the mercy of God is found in Jesus Christ. To be sure, just as the Jews and the Samaritans have no dealings with each other because of their mutual hatred, God has no dealings with humankind after the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And just as the Jews would not step into Samaria, humans are not allowed into God's presence. We are by nature enemies of God because of sin. And God is our enemy because his judgment for sin is death. But God overcame hatred with love. He showed loving mercy on us by sending his son to die for us on the cross so that we may be forgiven and rescued from this death. Jesus is the enemy who bothered to save us when we were left to die in our sins. He is the good Samaritan. And Jesus came down from heaven to live next to us to show us the love of the Father. He is our divine neighbor. Because Jesus is the good Samaritan and our divine neighbor we may all experience mercy from God. And when we believe in Him, when we confess our sins and our needs and receive from Him, this mercy becomes a personal experience. When someone does you a big favor, don't pay it back. Pay it forward. Don't know if you remember uh, this movie released 20 years ago. Anybody seen this? Some of you are old enough to have seen it. (laughs) Uh, In the movie, a young boy starts a plan to change the world for the better by doing a favour for three people. The favour must be something that the recipient cannot complete uh, for themselves. For example... uh, like how I removed the red end from the young lady's hair because she couldn't remove it for for herself. I mean, in fact, she didn't even know she was in danger. Anyway, so instead of asking them to pay him back, the boy tells his recipients to pay it forward by each doing a favour to three other people uh, apart from him. Now, does good deeds branch out and multiply? Though I've never seen this movie before, uh, I think I'm busy with A-levels, uh, it left a deep impression because it created quite a stir back then. I remember people starting to do kindness in school and and so on and i be- and believe it or not, actually, twenty years after this movie, people are still paying it forward. found this on an online blog. Uh, a lady named Samantha um, in two thousand and twenty during the pandemic was working at a drive through fast food restaurant one evening, she came in for a night shift and found her co-workers in a strangely good mood. As she was getting ready, she heard a shout outside saying, That makes 27! In her own words, Apparently about 40 minutes ago, uh, an elderly couple had elected to pay for the meal of the car behind them and started a chain as a result. They were on their 27th order, paid for, when I walked in. It kept going on for another eight before a man ended the chain Uh, because he couldn't afford to pay a $50 meal instead of his $2 ice cream. Very understandable. Every time someone chose to pay for the meal behind them, the entire crew would cheer and thank them. It was so great to watch, honestly. I saw a mother of four break down in tears when she learned her order was paid for and she happily paid for the car behind her. A suburban dad, after his $10 shake was paid for, Casually paid for the seventy-four-dollar order behind him. The night was filled with laughter and celebration as we watched so many people pass on kindness they have been shown. There were many other people who posted similar pay-it-forward change stories on that forum, but I chose Samantha's because of this last line she wrote. I learned that there are really some great people in the world. And I saw myself that when kindness is shown, no one is afraid to reflect it. When kindness is shown, no one is afraid to reflect it. If people can be bold enough to reflect kindness when a stranger buys them a meal, how much more should we be bold enough to perform mercy because God redeemed our lives. How much more should we tell people about the gospel when they can't see that they're in danger of eternal damnation and are in need of God's saving mercy? Love your neighbor as yourself. Perform mercy to your neighbor just as you have experienced mercy yourself. All Christians have experienced God's mercy when we first believe. We cried uncontrollable tears of repentance. We felt the forgiveness of God lift up our hearts. We are filled with the love of God as the Spirit descends upon us. Joy overwhelms us and we want to shout it out loud, Jesus Christ is the Lord, la! However, just as you can't use the same disposable battery to power your clock forever, Our first salvation experience cannot power a lifetime of compassion. Many of us who have been baptized and confirmed for many years will know that the experience of mercy fades over time because humans are forgetful creatures. It can run dry after years of faithful service. If we want to continue to perform mercy, we must recharge on divine mercy through the Holy Spirit. If you want to be empowered to reach out to the Queenstown community in this new harvest season, we do need fresh experiences of God's mercy in our lives. You know, Christians sometimes, uh, actually often, run low on compassion for others because we do not love ourselves. We demand too much from our own heart to love, our own soul to persevere, our own strength to perform and our own mind to tackle problems. We think that we should not have problems with money, with family, with work, because God is with us. We feel that we should not be upset or angry or afraid because God is in us. But you know, when we believe in such lies, we do not come to God to ask for more mercy. And we run very dry. Hmm commercial break, that's all the time we have for commercial <laughs> but the fact of the matter is there is a common human denominator everybody is in need pastor's not watching this but hey. everyone has problems, money problems, work problems family problems everyone feels upset gets angry, becomes afraid everyone including Christians because we are humans too if we're really honest with ourselves, we are all like the man who was robbed, stripped, beaten and left for dead. Who doesn't have your money robbed by inflation? Who doesn't have your peace robbed by war? Who doesn't meet people who strip away at your self-worth, calling you names and telling you that you're stupid or unworthy? Maybe it's yourself. Who doesn't feel beaten down in life by evil people and corrupted systems who are powerless to change? And who doesn't feel half-dead at the end of the week? I always feel that after Sunday. But the difference is, Christians and unbelievers are not the same because if God is willing, he can deliver us now. If he is not, he will deliver us in the end. Therefore, we should not be ashamed of our needs, of confessing our needs. Let us not be afraid of revealing our problems to God. The world can mock us all they want, but we will love ourselves and come to God every day and tell him, I need you, Lord. We will come to God to say, we need you, Lord, help us. And we know when we humbly trust and obey, when we ask, God will show us mercy in Jesus Christ because he is the good Samaritan, our divine neighbor who loves us. And then, when we have God's mercy, let us go out and be neighbours to a dying world. I'm going to lead us in prayer and give us an opportunity to seek God's mercy afresh. At any time, if you feel that we are praying for needs, I invite you just to say uh, in your own space, Lord, have mercy upon me. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you sent Jesus, your Son, to be our good Samaritan and divine neighbour. Therefore, we boldly come before you with our needs. Lord, you know that we have money problems. Inflation, rising cost of living, but still the same salary every month, puts pressure on us all when we go to the market when we eat out with our families when our children ask for things we feel the pinch yet we still lord have to spend on these things in addition on housing on health care on children and grandchildren will we have enough lord we are afraid of being poor not being able to provide for our families. Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, you know that we have family problems. There is a family member or family members we can't talk about to anyone. A family member we can't communicate with anymore. The truth is we can't change them and they can't change us. Yet they are still family. We are angry, we are embarrassed, we are lost. What shall I do, Lord? Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, you know we have work problems. It's still that same boss still those same colleagues, still doing the same work every day. Week in, week out, all these we have complained to you before, but we complain to you again because we continue to suffer under these things and people. And we admit that we continue to depend on you to get through every single day. We feel trapped, we're stuck. Lord, have mercy upon me. And there are some of us, Lord, who are struggling with medical problems. My mother has cancer. She's still going through treatment, appointments every month, getting your blood drawn, waiting for appointments, receiving bad news from the doctor more appointments, more drugs, more side effects. Some of us are the ones who are suffering from these illnesses. Maybe we're waiting for a diagnosis. Maybe we have been, we're being treated. Maybe it's been going on for a long time since it's chronic. Lord, we feel weak. Incapacitated. Lord, have mercy upon us. Because you have promised, Lord, that you are our good Samaritan and our divine neighbour, so we ask now also, Lord, that your Holy Spirit come and heal your people. Show us your mercy, we pray. To those who are worn and torn, bring healing. Say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have done enough. Rest now. I will take over from here. To those who feel used and abused, give new power. Say to them, I will make you this day a fortified city an iron pillar and bronze walls. People will fight against you, but they shall not prevail, for I am with you to deliver you. And to those who are hurt and continue to live under strained relationships, to live among enemies, give us peace. Say to them, in this world you will have trouble, but do not be afraid. I have overcome the world, and I am coming soon. Thank you, Father, for the promises you've made to us. Let us hold on to these things, knowing that you do care, you do know, you are listening, and you will answer. Father, help us to receive this mercy into our hearts, to know your forgiveness, your healing, your goodness in our lives. And when we are filled, Lord, and help us to pour it out to our neighbors, for we do trust and we do obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.